Welcome to episode 142 of The Digital Life, a show about our adventures in the world of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Niemeyer. Greetings, John. So, Dirk, this week, we're going to chat a little bit about one of my, uh, I don't know if this is one of my favorite topics overall, but it's something that that really interests me, and that is uh, design and innovation. And, and in this case, we're going to talk about sort of the rapid evolution of the processes that, you know, make both of those things possible in the context of our knowledge economy. So I want to start off with this uh, particularly interesting article that I read in Sloan Review uh, from MIT, talking about how Chinese companies are essentially taking an assembly line approach to R&D. And what that means is that uh, since they're dividing up the R&D process into smaller chunks and allowing uh, specialized teams, although not as highly trained as, you know, your typical R&D team, but specialized teams to uh, take a crack at each one of these chunks. They're breaking it up, and that's enabling uh, these companies to attack problems in parallel uh, rather than in serial. So this doesn't allow for that kind of uh, research plus genius breakthrough that we kind of expect from, you know, a small team of experts trying to find the next big thing, whether it's in, uh, you know, semiconductors or, you know, in, in uh, um, you know, chip design or what have you. But it does allow these companies to become very fast followers. So if something is right on the cutting edge, they can figure out how to do it and get through the engineering process faster than, you know, any Western companies right now. And this uh, Sloan Review article really digs into those, those factors and, and kind of shows how, how the Chinese are able to, uh, you know, industrialize this, this uh, system of innovation, which I think uh, here in the West, we, we sometimes think of that as, uh, being something that that can't be chopped up in, into pieces and 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 automated well not automated but systemized in such a way that you can you know attack little parts of it. I mean it's sort of this uh, this holy grail of knowledge work where uh, a bunch of smart people take uh, a lot of data and and studying the market and uh, understanding of people and then you know, let that all percolate and it sort of happens uh, in, in, in a creative way and, and it takes a while to do. Yeah. So as, as designers ourselves, you know, you know I, I've never really considered, a, you know, a parallel design process like that. And it's, it's just such a, such a different way of looking at things that, you know, I've, I found the article not, not shocking in and of itself, but you're putting together two things that I thought would, would never fit together. Yeah. And, and frankly, it's, it's the kind of change in, in, in industry that could really upend things for, uh, uh, for companies that aren't able to move as quickly uh, as these Chinese companies are. So, you know, with that as our, you know, foundation, Dirk, what, what are your initial impressions of, the, you know, this new technique of innovation? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very logical use of the resources that they have available. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's 
There's a surplus of labor. There's increasingly a surplus of educated labor as exactly. they've invested tremendously in education in China um, and a surplus of um, educated, not particularly experienced labor, which lends itself to being deployed on, on, on these teams and processes. I mean, one of the other things that the article talked about is they'll often have these things going in serial. So mm-hmm. whereas in, in the U.S., I mean, in I, I, I want to say all, but certainly in almost all, if not all, of the very innovative companies that we've worked with over the years, they've got basically one set of teams solving each problem. Um, that doesn't really make a lot of sense if you think about what's mm-hmm. the quickest and best way to solve difficult problems. But the, the economic model here, the traditions of of creation, certainly as they've emerged, you know, after World War II, um, lend themselves to that sort of an approach. And, you know, China has a different set of resources at its disposal. It has um, all the incentive in the world in their competition with the United States, you know, with Germany, the wonderful engineering in Germany, and, and with other other nations that really established um, either innovators or, you know, um, uh, executors of technical greatness, um, they should be leveraging their strengths. And this sort of process is a great example of them doing exactly that. You know what this reminds me of a little bit is in, in the early days of the web, uh, there was this brute force uh, information architecture uh, technique where you would just throw uh, lots and lots of young uh, uh, sort of you know, either library science or, or design graduates uh, at, at a problem like uh, the information architecture of a large website. And, and there were certain agencies that were known for this um, where the, the architecture, it was almost, it was almost done um, uh, like a phone book would be, right? But eventually it got to the, uh, to the right place because you you were brute forcing everything, yeah. so you had a lot of people. I mean, this this was in the days when uh, I, I don't know, like Yahoo was was uh, 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 riding high on the, <laughs> on the stock exchange. That was a long time ago, um, and it was this. You know, the, there was money to be had everywhere, so you could pay all of these uh, these these young designers. Uh, a, a decent wage, but but you could throw quite a few of them at you know a problem like like an IA problem, uh, and and sort of break apart all of the pieces. You know whether it was using uh, uh, you know this you know I'll call it the the telephone book technique, uh, where you're just dumping all the information in there and and hoping you know it comes out on the other side in some sort of you know, sensible, logical way. But because there was so much demand for uh, website design services that were not, you know, in particularly, uh, you know, there there wasn't a lot of trained individuals uh, who could do that. So you made up for it in just, you know, with bodies. Um, So that reminds me of uh, this, this approach reminds me of that a little bit, except it's, it's much more refined, I think, and much more, uh, systemized in, in in a way that seems like it's going to become a a competitive advantage soon. So so I want to raise a another example that I noticed over the holidays. The the hoverboards, which uh, you know are sort of the bane of 
uh, parents' existence across the United States. Mike Tyson's as well. Yeah, and and of course they they're all sort of shoddily made and 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 made with batteries that that burst into into flame if you're not careful. These hoverboards sort of ma- almost magically appeared on the market, um, you know, right in time for the holidays. And as far as anyone can tell, the IP for these, uh, you know, this new toy was shared across multiple Chinese manufacturers, and no one can really figure out who came up with the uh, original designs. And and that goes to the idea of uh, intellectual property being fluid, malleable in a way that you know, in, in the past, you might you might think of uh, a metal that could be shaped however you like it. I mean, with with our IP rules in the United States, it's not as easy to 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 share, reuse, leverage uh, other companies' IP. You 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 can't just go and uh, take someone's design and use it uh, to a T. Whereas in 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 China, the those bright lines are are not quite so bright. And the sharing, uh, the culture of sharing is, is a lot more present. And so what that means is that they have a heck of a lot more leverage and can move that much faster because they're not worried about whether someone has uh, the patent on that particular design. So the hoverboards were created uh, by a group of uh, Chinese, you know, manufacturing companies all at the same time in parallel with no one in particular owning, you know, the copyright or the patent on it. And I think that's you know, I mean, the end result was a hot product in more than one ways that sold, um, you know, quite a few over the holidays. And then also happened to, you know, soon after sort of fall fall off the radar because they were unsafe. But I think that points to a future where we need to consider the fact that the material uh, that we're dealing with as designers, as innovators, as creative class workers uh, that material that we're leveraging, that IP, um, needs to be able to be, a, you know, more more fluid, more malleable, more able to be leveraged, or or we're going to uh, be left behind. I think. What's your take on that, Dirk? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm not super familiar with the use case um, or with the business case in China around the hoverboard, so I don't I don't want to draw too many concrete parallels to that because I just don't know the the legitimacy of it at the end of the day. Um, you know, IP is tricky, right? Because in, it's it's really necessary in capitalism, in a capitalist structure, because you, people need to be compensated. They're putting in all the effort in order to be compensated. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a sticky wicket when you have someone developing a cancer drug or an AIDS drug, and you have people saying that should be for everyone. It shouldn't just be for the rich. But the problem is they de- they developed it to make money. The only way they make money is charging a lot for it. If sure. that gets broken down, then they'll never develop the next great drug because they know there's no incentive for them for them on the back end. Which is just to say that um, IP is this necessary evil when you're in uh, sort of a, a, a market based economy like you know the the, the capitalist um, structure that we have in, in the United States and in in much of the world. Um, and that's, you know, that's a bit of a straitjacket in, in, 
in some ways. You know, when everyone's playing by the same rules, um, it's not. But if you have situations where people are, are sidestepping that, and uh, again, I don't know enough about the business case, so I want to be, be careful. But if people are taking a different approach to it that is not as locked down, um, that could certainly provide a risk. And, you know, the examples that we can see that sort of validate the, the different approach being better really um, can come out of technology. You know, in, in the startup community for a long time now, it's the, it's the whole idea of you've just got to get it out there. Like, don't keep it hidden for years until you get it perfect. You need to just get it out, iterate and go, iterate and go, iterate and go. Silicon Valley has been um, investing in software and technology using that philosophy for decades now. And it's a given that that's the correct approach to go from having an idea to ultimately commercializing it in the best and most profitable way. At the same time, our, our IP structure is based around secrecy, hoarding, um, the total opposite. And so there is certainly uh, likely some, some logic, some sense in a different, more fluid, more dynamic um, perspective on intellectual property and how companies treat it and use it. Yeah, I think ultimately we're, we're going to have to find ways that we can be more efficient with, with you know, sharing uh, our ideas across across silos, whether that's uh, things like uh, you know things as simple as as designs, or you know as complicated as uh, you know uh, uh, these manufacturing techniques that 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 uh, run entire um, uh, industrial systems. The sad thing for U.S. companies is we haven't figured out within the same company how to work across departments, how to work across silos without horrible inefficiency you know, human interaction issues. Um, we can't solve it in a company. So the idea of solving it in some bigger, more holistic way across companies, like that's, that's way the hell out. There. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it is. And I, and I think, you know, that, that, you know, IP, whether, whether it's, uh, open or not really is the, uh, you know, really is the material of the 21st century economy and the, the people who figure out how, uh, to best leverage that, uh, you know, whether whether it's uh, this, you know, sometimes questionable use uh, with uh, with with Chinese companies, or or whether it's you know uh, open source uh, projects, you know, that we see, uh, you know, everywhere around the world, uh, or whether it's it's somewhere in between, you know, the lockdown patented ideas versus, you know, the, the, the open systems. But it's more open. I mean, Wikipedia kicks Encyclopedia Britannica's ass every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Sure. And, and, and that's, and that's a perfect example of, of how, uh, the, the ways that we think about, uh, call it, you know, the industrial age thinking versus the, uh, um, digital age thinking uh, that just shows the clash right there, uh, encapsulated. So, you know, I think we'll leave it there for today, but I know I'm going to want to revisit this, this discussion again, because, uh, I, I find it absolutely fascinating how the creative class is, uh, uh, figuring out ways to work together. Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along to the, uh, the things we were mentioning here in real time. Just head over to the digitallife.com, that's just one L in the digital life, and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everybody, 
So it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. And if you want to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by Involution Studios, which you can check out at GoInvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Dirk? You can follow me on Twitter at DMemeyer. That's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. Or you can email me, Dirk, at GoInvo.com. So that's it for episode 142 of The Digital Life. For Dirk Niemeyer, I'm John Follett, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.